All right. Um, how many of you have ever had an experience where somebody uh, handed you a book to read and you read it, and uh, the book had just the right message, just the right time in your life, and it made a profound impact on your life? Does anybody have that kind of situation? Well, a number of years ago, a woman from our church was out on a business trip in the Portland, Oregon area, and she was talking to a, a friend out there about some things, and the friend handed her a book. And she read the book, and it was just the right message and just the right time for some things in her life. She excitedly flew back home here to Minnesota and gave the book to her husband, and amazingly, he read it. Apparently, he doesn't usually read things that she gives him. Uh, but he read it, and it was just the right message and just the right time for some things going on in his life. Around that same time, this man was a part of a small group meeting with other men, and one of the other men in the group had just mustered up some courage to reveal to the, the fellows in his group about some secret struggles he was having with sexual sin, sexual addiction. And uh, one by one, almost all the other men in the group started to share about their own struggle, and it became an issue that was out on the table now, and they could start working it through. So the first man brought the book to the group, and they all started to work their way through that book, and it was just the right message, just the right time, and it had a profound impact on their lives. To the extent that they started a ministry here in our church called Pure Desire, and the book is called Pure Desire. And we're blessed today to have uh, our guest speaker is the author of this book, Dr. Ted Roberts. Um, Ted and some members from his church have just flown in yesterday to host a conference in the next two days. We're having a Pure Desire conference Monday and Tuesday. Uh, if you're interested in this, it's still possible to sign up for this. There's brochures like this out in the gathering area at the discipleship kiosk. Uh, Ted Roberts is a pastor of East Hill Church in Gresham, Oregon, just outside Portland. Ted first came to know Christ as a fighter pilot in Vietnam, in the Vietnam War. And when he came home from the war, he felt the call from the Lord to start a ministry, to go into the ministry. He went and pursued his master's degree and his doctorate. He's been pastoring for the last 18 years now at East Hill Church. And Ted's ministry, as you'll see when he gets up and shares this powerful message, is marked by a passion for people coming to know the love of Christ, but it's also marked by a passion for people uh, in Christ getting healing. And his church is known as a church that's open and out front about issues that other churches are hush-hush about. And our term for that here at Woodland Hills is real, being real. And so Ted's going to come up and, uh, and share with us this morning, and I just invite you to give him a Woodland Hills welcome. Dr. Ted Roberts. Thanks, Kevin. Well, it's great to be with you, people with a similar heart. We had a great time last night. Um, I was uh, picked up at the airport, immediately brought to the service. Uh, Stu and uh, Andrew were just raving about your pastor, and I thought, either you've got a great pastor or these guys want a job, uh, one or the other. But I talked to them, and they said, no, I've seen what he does, and I don't want to do it. And I spent some time with your pastor. We have a very similar heart. We have about... Uh, Eight to 10,000 people at East Hill, almost uh, all unchurched. Uh, only about 8% of the population where we live ever goes to church even once a year. So it's an ideal place to be at. I can shoot in any direction and hit the target. Uh, but what's amazing is that I find myself standing here. Uh, sometimes I, I just crack up that I, I'm the most unlikely individual I know to ever be a pastor. In fact, last year when I was in Brazil, I was speaking before several thousand uh, leaders, and I just started thinking about how I ended up in that place, and I started laughing out loud, and I kind of embarrassed myself so much because of just God's humor that would he ever select me as a pastor. Uh, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let me share with you my first public prayer. 
as uh, Kevin uh, indicated, I met Christ in a bunker in Vietnam in the middle of a rocket attack. Uh, I had the sense to marry a good Jewish girl who loved Jesus. And in the middle of a day where I had to kill people at close range, she sent me a love package, a care package. Uh, and she had a love note in it uh, telling about her love for me and her love for her God. And a little tiny book, Crossing a Switchblade. And as I read through that book, the, uh, the author of the book was confronted by an individual that, that threatened to cut him into a million pieces. And that day I had seen people blown into a million pieces and, and he talked about the love of God. And I remember kneeling down and saying, God, I've always believed in you and I don't know who this Jesus is, but sign me up. Well, that was the start of it. I was a career Marine officer and uh, I came to Christ, came back and tried to go to church. I couldn't handle church. I still can't handle church, and I'm a senior pastor, but, you know, that's a whole other story. Uh, and so I couldn't, I could, just couldn't handle church. It, I mean, they talked about this perfect family, and, I mean, my, my mother was an alcoholic. I was an illegitimate child, and I had seven stepfathers, most of which were very abusive. So, I mean, they were not, like, talking my language. I couldn't handle church, so I just kind of gave up on it. My wife kept working on me, and she says, now, come on, you, 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 need, you need to start acting on this decision, and she says, why don't you go to a Bible study? And I, I'd figured out, if I'd said yes to Jesus, I should read his love letters, okay? So I said, yeah, I'll go. Now, here's the scene. I'm a career Marine officer, and it was an all-woman's Bible study. <laughs> it was like slowly sitting on a tack for two hours. <laughs> Finally, mercifully, the thing ended. And I remember the leader of the group, her name was Dorcas, and I went like, these Christians are weird people, naming your daughter Dorcas, you know. And I remember she had one eye this way and the other eye went this way. And she said, would you please pray? Would you close in prayer? And I said, sure. You know, and then I thought, I've never done this before, except for crying out, help, you know, God, the plane's crashing. And uh, so they all joined their hands together and stuck their heads down. It looked like a herd of ostriches. I'd never seen, I'd never seen people act that way before, you know. So it got real quiet. Remember, the point of this is I'm sharing with you my first public prayer. Got real quiet, and I figured out, oh, then I'm supposed to pray. So I said, well, Lord, whatever the hell you want us to do, we're ready. <laughs> and uh, Two little old ladies, I kid you not, passed out in the back. They just went, oh, you know, oh, my Lord. And Dorcas leaned over and she tapped my knee. I'll never forget it. She became my spiritual kind of grandma. She reached over and tapped my knee and she said, that's the first time you publicly prayed, isn't it? And I thought, man, how'd she know that, you know? She says, would you like to know a prayer that God would answer immediately? And I said, yeah, that'd be cool. She says, well, just ask God if there's anything he'd like to change about you. Now, before the Lord, I thought, great prayer. I don't need it. Well, the next day, it was a change of command ceremony. I was a Marine uh, flight instructor assigned to a Navy training squadron. And uh, I was training uh, individuals in the last part of the uh, process to get their wings. Mostly, I trained in air combat maneuvering, dogfighting, and, uh, and uh, ground attack. So I'm sitting out there, and uh, it's a change of command ceremony. And they needed someone to kind of do the strutting, you know, rooster thing, get out there and prance. And, well, I was immediately selected. I mean, there was no question about it. We need someone that just can be out there and be really arrogant. This guy, he's perfect for the part. So I'm standing out there, and I'm waiting. I'm in the adjutant's group. I'm waiting for them to get the squadron in order. 700 sailors to get them all pointed in the same direction. We're talking hours. 
You're talking hours. These guys can't walk and chew gum at the same time. They get them march and get them pointed in all the same direction. I'm sitting there going, oh, man, when are they going to get those swabbies in order back there? And uh, right then I remembered the prayer. And I said, well, Lord, if there's anything you'd like to change in my life, go ahead. I've since learned that is not a good prayer to pray in public. It's not good. So right then the adjutant's call sounds. So, so I came out and pulled out my sword, you know, and all present count of sir. You know, I was really good. I mean, I was awesome, man. I was just, and the new commanding officer was there. And I had to impress him because he was going to determine the future steps of my career. So I was, and it, I just, I, I had it nailed. Now, the Marine Corps sword is a real man's sword. It's not the Navy little all the sticker thing. I mean, it, it's a big sword. It's curved. It's a, it's a man's sword, you know. Well, if you've got a curved sword, then you've got a curved scabbard. They better match when you put them back in. So you don't look. You just do it, boom, back in. Well, I'd done it like eight years, you know. I mean, I just went, well, today, I still think an angel went over and rotated the scabbard 180 degrees. It ain't going to fit, folks. But I'm sitting there going, I'm trying to get it in, you know. And it's just not getting in. I'm standing out in front of everybody. I'm ruining the new commanding officer's change of command ceremony. And he looks at me, his face is beat red, and he says, it stuck, you idiot. You know, I'm trying to get it in. And the scabbard falls off, hits the concrete floor, rings like a bell. And and, and I don't know what to do. So I pick up the scabbard and the sword, and I just kind of go back. And 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 I'm standing in the adjutant's group there, you know. And 700 sailors are going, yeah, baby, yeah. Slam dunk. And I'm going, what happened? It was the first time I heard the voice of God. He said, see what an arrogant little man you are? Now, Jesus loves you very deeply, but he'll tell you the truth. And the real truth is not that you're an arrogant little man. The real truth is, but son, I'd make you a lover. I'd make you a great man. I discovered shortly after that I was an alcoholic. I mean, a serious alcoholic. I was a rageaholic. When you come back from Vietnam and people spit on you in the airport, it makes you kind of mad. Uh, and I was a sex addict, totally out of control. I mean, just completely out of control. I was in the middle of spiritual warfare. I'd come out of warfare, and now I realized I was in real warfare. And a side issue, I want to thank you for having guts enough, to having the chutzpah enough, to do a Pure Desire conference. You see, this issue is eating the church alive. When I speak in men's conferences, there'll be four or 5,000 guys there, all church guys, and I'll say, let's, let's start dealing with this issue. And it's not trying harder, saying I'm never going to do it again. That doesn't work. Have you figured that out yet? Okay, 70 to 80%, always 70 to 80% of the men will come forward. These guys in church, they're losing the battle. A recent survey on the internet, 55% of pastors surveyed are internet porn. Internet porn is the crack cocaine of sexual addiction. I mean, it's just exploding. Now, what that means, bottom line is this. What that means is, unless the church starts dealing with this, and most churches don't want, I know maybe two or three churches in the entire United States that have a, a ministry in this area. Unless the church starts dealing with this, we can be big, big, big church buildings, we can have all kinds of revivals, we can have all kinds of stuff, but you know what? The enemy's just laughing up his sleeve at us. See, you guys, it's just a joke. Because lot, right down at the core of the church, there, there's, not, there's not health. And, and I'd put it this way, you know, if, if, if you really get upset at me, then send, send, send letters to your pastor, not me. I'm leaving town, okay, Tuesday. But unless we have a revival, our kids are going to grow up in hell because our culture is spiraling rapidly downward. See, we're in a spiritual war. 
And once you come to Christ, you realize you've been in spiritual war all along, but now you get to fight the good fight. You know what the good fight is? It's the one you win. You get to fight the good fight. Hell's been knocking the snot out of you before you came to Christ. You didn't know it. Now you see it, and now you can do something about it. So let me take in a few moments we have together. Just take your precious time, and let's look at how to fight the good fight. Turn with me to the back of the book that tells us we win. It's called the book of Revelation, all the way in the back of book of God's love letters. Revelation chapter 12. Now, I want to look at this passage in three contexts. Number one, I want to look at it in a covenantal context. Number two, a historical context. And then look at the actual text itself. Covenantal context, what does that mean? Old Testament, New Testament. You look all the way through the Old Testament, you don't see much about your spiritual adversary. His name in the Old Testament is Satan, one who accuses one who accuses. And there's not much information. You only see him in a shadowy sense. Like in the book of Ezekiel, you can see him behind the king of Tyre pulling the strings. See, behind demonic kingdoms, behind uh, governments that are really abusive, you will always find hell pulling the strings. But you don't see much insight. When you come to the New Testament, his name changes to the devil because he accuses you falsely. You see, if you've said yes to Christ, then he can't accuse you before God. You're covered by the blood of Christ. Because God's always dealing with you in light of your destiny, not your past. But you start seeing in the New Testament insights into his tactics. If you're in combat, I was on the ground and in the air, and you're in a fight, life or death, somebody's coming out alive, someone's coming out death, you better know four things. And spiritually, that's what we're talking about. You better know your enemy's tactics, and you better know the weapons that he brings against you. And you had better know your tactics and you better know your weapons. You have to know those four things if you're going to win a battle, spiritually, physically, any way you want to put it. Now, what's amazing about Revelation chapter 12, we're going to begin at verse 10. This is the clearest picture you'll find in all of God's love letters to us of the enemy's strategy and how you take him out. It's just magnificent. Follow along with me, beginning at verse 10. And John the Beloved writes, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser, the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God, day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens. Rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury. Why? Because he knows his time is short. His strategy is pretty clear. It's accusation. Now, he can't accuse you before God. No, no, no. He's much trickier than that, much subtler than that. You know what he does? He accuses God before you. What? He accuses God before you. Put it in the historical context. Who wrote this book? John the Beloved. He's, he's late in his years. I mean, we think he's something like 80, 85. In those days, that would be like 120 today. I mean, it's like unbelievably old. He has poured his whole life into the church in Turkey, what we call today Turkey, be Asia Minor. Where is he? He's in a little tiny island called Patmos, about 12 miles across out in the Aegean Sea, doing what? Breaking up rocks in the chain gang. The heel of the Roman government is slammed down on him. See, at the beginning of this book, that's the beginning of 250 years of persecution in the church. Over 300,000 people, minimum, are slaughtered per year in Asia Minor. So John, on a bad day, 
which means it's clear. He can see all the way over from Patmos over to Asia Minor. He can see the smoke going up from the buildings of the homes of the people that he poured his life into. So what's the accusation? The enemy would have leaned over to him and said, look, what good did it do you to serve God? Look, it's all going up in smoke. For those of you who said yes to Christ and you're here, let me speak to you at this point. Those who are investigating the claims of Christ, hang with me for just a moment. I'll be right back. For those of you who have said yes to Christ, I guarantee you, at some point in your life, God loves you so much, he will allow you to get down to bare metal. Now, for Americans, it's a little tough because we're in the top 8% in the world financially. So we got a lot of stuff that we can kind of insulate ourselves from reality. But at some point, God will allow you to come down to really tough times. Why? So you can make a fundamental decision. Why are you serving him? The American gospel is you come to Jesus, sweetheart, you get a new BMW, new home. Hey, no more problems. Your kids all turn out wonderful. It's going to be great. Come to Jesus. No, pardon me. That's not the gospel I read. I mean, I was in mainland China. You know, basic Christianity, what it is there? Six months in jail. No, no, pardon me. That's not, that's not Christianity. Don't give me the bait and switch. Don't tell me come to Jesus and everything's going to be fine and give me reality. No, no, don't do that bait and switch on me. See, the truth is God will allow you to come down to the place at some point in your life where you'll have to make a decision why you're serving him. And the, the, the healthy decision is I serve him for not what I can get out of him, but because of who he is. He is my God, and he's my Savior, and he's my lover and my friend. See, that's exactly what's going on, John. Now, why would that God allow that to happen in our life? So that you can have a character. See, when you run into a man like that, you can't buy or sell him. You can't push him around because he's already got foundationally settled who he is. The enemy's tactic is to accuse God before you. Now, back to everybody. And his strategy, (laughs) he's not fair. How many of you have discovered life's not fair? Anybody discover life's not fair? The rest of you will discover that. Life ain't fair, sweetheart. You can whine and cry about it not being fair all you want to, but it's still not going to be fair. Well, what's the good news about that? Well, let me tell you a story of my life. Uh, I was out, uh, we were having a picnic, and we're a fairly large congregation, so we're covering all the of, all of baseball diamonds uh, all over the whole park. And I was over there trying to pretend I could still play baseball. I, I couldn't do it real when I was 20. And so the congregation who's around is just having a crack up watching me make a fool of myself. And one guy runs out and he says, Pastor Ted, your son's just been hit in the head with a baseball bat. And I knew where he was, my, my son, Brian. And so I turned and I started running that way. Have you ever been in a situation where you're just like running in concrete? I mean, just, everything just slows down. And as I'm running towards my son, hell is saying to me, your son is dead and all the dreams and promises God has given you, they're gone. I had seven stepfathers. Most of them were very abusive. Most of them were alcoholic. They just loved to punch my lights out. That's what they did for fun. I have one son. And... Uh, He's my son. What can I say? And the thing that hit me so strongly is I'd counseled a fellow whose son had been hit in the head with a baseball bat. He was in a coma for three months and eventually died. And that father had never told his son he loved him. Sir, you have wasted a day if you don't tell three people you love him. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care what the sales happens to be. I don't care how many points you may have scored. I don't care what the plaques are on the wall. You just wasted a day if you didn't tell your God you love him, and if you're married, you're made, and your children, you love him. Well, I told my son I love him <laughs> all the time. And the enemy's just saying, he's dead. He's dead. And so I run over there, and there's a group of people around him. And I kid you not, a little, little girl over here to the side, she said to her mom, she says, is he dead? 
And I push everybody back. Brian's got a head wound. When you have a head wound, blood's flying everywhere. And so I pick him up, and one eyeball comes in, and the other eyeball comes in, and he goes, I don't think I'm dead, Dad. And I scoop him up and run into the Grigsby's van, and, and we're, we're driving along, and, and, and he's just really hurting, and he's trying not to cry. And I sense that, and I said, son, only strong men can cry. Weak men don't cry. They just stuff their emotions. I said, now's the time to cry as men together and just to pray in the spirit. And we both started crying. I'm blowing snot and everything. I mean, it's just, you know, I'm holding. And then it hit me. See, with seven stepfathers, I, for years, had a tough time. I think about Father God, stepfather's face had come up. You know, I'm kind of, whoa, don't trust God. You know, male figure, whoo. And I look down. You know what I've got? I've got the blood of my son on my hands. And it hit me. See, my God loved me so much. He didn't take his son to the ICU unit. He didn't take him to the emergency ward. He let his son die for me. Whoa. That's a love I don't understand. That's a love even when I get on the other side of eternity. I won't understand it. I'll just fall down in adoration. At that moment, God brought a profound healing in my soul. You see, life is not fair. You know what it is? It's gracious. It's gracious. I remember in the, in the operating room, Brian wasn't out, and they were stitching him up. And, and I said, is he going to have a scar, Doc? And Doc says, well, yeah. I said, oh, good. And Brian goes, huh? I said, son, this gives us a memory of where the enemy took his best shot, and God turned it into a blessing. See, no matter what the enemy shoots at you, <laughs> the grace of God just bends it right around, right back into his face. Brings it right around back into his face. So what are our weapons? Oh, yeah, now we get to the fun part. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. <laughs> I never went to church except for pick up on women. That was the only reason I ever went to church. So once I came to Christ and I started coming to church, and everything's weird, you know. I remember in this one service, they were talking about the blood of the lamb, and there's these two little old ladies up front that had these hankies, and they're going, whoa, the blood of the lamb, you know. And I'm going, this is sick. This is really a sick place. Slaughterhouse religion. I'm sorry. I'm out of here. But I looked at their face and I could sense in the spirit it was real to them. I mean, there was something going on here that I didn't understand. There was something that was just profound. And, and so I remember just saying, Lord, could, could you please explain that to me? I mean, I don't get it. Well, the next day I was having a, a flight training some students and in ACM, air combat maneuvering, dog fighting, as you know. And what you do is get in one plane with a student and the other plane flies along fat, dumb, and happy. And you begin to show him how to attack another aircraft. It's a very demanding, challenging thing to do. Well, we're in the briefing and the chase plane comes in and it's Mel. I didn't realize he'd just become part of the squadron. And we used to fight all the time in the air, you know, just mock dogfights. And so I looked at him and I just finished the briefing and he looked at me and I said, I'm gonna eat you alive. You know, I was laid back and mellow in those days. So I said, I'm gonna eat you alive. He said, I'm gonna get you. So I turned to the student and I said, forget the briefing, just get a big barf bag and hang on, all right? We're gonna show you the real thing. Well, we got in the area, and you have to have an area because airliners really get upset when you do dogfights around them, all right? They get really bent out of shape. So we got in the area, and just bam, just nose to nose, you know, wham, canopy to canopy. We're just screaming right by each other. Now, when, you, when you're dogfighting, you're, ladies, you actually wear a girdle. It wraps all the way around your legs, wraps around your chest. And what it does is it keeps the blood when you're pulling Gs, which drains out of your head from going to your feet because then you pass out, you die. This is not good, all right? So what happens is the G-suit squeezes your legs and chest and squeezes all the blood back up into your head, all right? 
So it's pretty intense. So wham, we're canopy to canopy. And I knew what Mel would do. We'd fight each other enough. He'd roll the wings level and snap into the vertical. And so I did the same thing, snapped up in the vertical. The only problem is the G-suit malfunctioned. Went to full 12 Gs. So now you have this helmet with two little feet under it. Because everything else is rammed up right in the helmet, you know. And I'm like, oh, you know, know, just squeezing the snot out of me. But I'm not going to give up, you know. And finally, he came over the top, and he lost me in the sun. And so as we started to fall through, I stomped bottom rudder. And it was like someone stuck a knife in my leg and ripped down the side. So I pulled the G-suit loose. And I said, that's it. We went and landed. And I talked to the flight surgeon. I said, you know, I'm like, what happened? So I told him the story. He said, oh, it's real simple. He says, the constriction completely remove the possibility of the blood being able to flow through your body so all the toxins built up and you had an allergic reaction. I mean, you had a tremendous muscle response. And I'm sitting there, and remember I prayed the night before? And all of a sudden, bingo, John 1, 7, 1 John 1, verse 7 and 8. If we walk in the light of he, as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Ah, got it. Got it. You see, Jesus didn't shed his blood for you just in one place, but four places. First place he shed his blood for you was in the Garden of Gethsemane. So you could be here today. Because he knew you would have a heart for him. And as he prayed for you, crying out on your behalf, it says in the Gospel of Luke that he literally sweat drops of blood. And I was an aircraft accident investigator too. And every now and then, it happens very rarely, but when someone sees a ground coming up before they slam into it, they'll go into trauma, and literally the, capsule, or the, cap, the blood vessels, pardon me, I can't even talk, the blood vessels of their forehead rupture. See, Jesus saw it coming. The cross wasn't a surprise to him. And what, what was the struggle? He says, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. See, his blood was shed so that even when I don't seem to have the capacity, I can walk in the will of God. I can walk in his will. And he shed his blood in another place. He shed his blood as the Praetorium Guard got a hold of him and began to play with him. They, they, they weaved together a crown of thorns and slammed it down on his head. Now, this was a guerrilla war. And all you have to do is be involved in a guerrilla war and have, have your friend over here step on a booby trap, have your friend over here get shot in the back by a sniper, have your friend over here. You start losing a couple of friends, and you get, you get, you get some of the, the guys on the other side, you will mess with them. You'll chop them up real slow. And so these, these, these Roman guards are taking the crown of thorns, and they're slamming it down on his head and mocking him. See, Jesus knows what it feels like to be caught in the games that people play. Sir, on the job? You've decided to follow Christ. And there's this guy over here. He didn't care about God or anybody else. He's stabbing everybody in the back, and he's making money hand over fist. He's stealing deals from you. That'll drive you nuts. Some of us carry a lot of baggage from our family, the games that were played with us when we were kids. Jesus knows what it feels like to be caught in the games that people play. See, all the stuff that I had from my past is only the blood of Christ that can start renewing my mind and bring me to health. And Christ shed his blood also at the whipping post as they literally tore his back to the hamburger. And Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before, looking down the corridors of time, said he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. Now, I, I don't understand supernatural healing. God uses me as a healing evangelist, but I don't understand it. Anybody says that they've got it all figured out, they don't have a clue what's going on. But there was one friend that really helped me out. When I went to cemetery... 
a seminary. It kind of turned out to be that. I mean, I'm sitting there, and I was amazed. This professor was taking the Gospel of John and making it boring. How, how, he must have gone to school for years to learn how to do that. I mean, it's like, how do you do that? That is just amazing. And I'm sitting there bored out of my mind, and my good friend-to-be, Larry, comes into the classroom. He's, he's in a wheelchair. He's paralyzed from the neck down, has one arm that works. Okay. He pulls up. Now, I'm probably the oldest guy in the class, so I'm kind of checking everything out. And Larry pulls up beside me, and he's sitting there, and he has a neurological reaction. He can't feel anything from, like, here down, but his legs start losing control. It's just neurological, and they start flying all over the place. Well, it's just like a gut shot when somebody gets hit, and they're dropped, you know, a bullet taken in the stomach. I mean, their legs flying all over the place. And so I'm just watching what's happening, because all the guys in the class are younger guys, and young guys do not like to lose control. I mean, it really embarrasses them. And so, sure enough, they all look away. And then I wondered what Larry would do. And he sensed that I was watching. I'll never forget. He grabbed one leg, pulled it in, grabbed the other leg, pulled it in, looked over at me and went, praise God. This guy's a player. This guy's a player. Now, I tell you that story because Larry was a great preacher. And I remember in, in our commencement, our graduation, we had him preach. He hooked one arm over the wheelchair and just wailed away. And I love what he'd do every time he preached. After he'd get through at the end, he says, now, nah, I want to pray for people for healing. Come on up front and I'll pray for you. He's going with his one good head praying for people. People are going, ah. This guy in a wheelchair is praying for healing? See, Larry had it down really well. He says, we're only dealing with timing here. Because when I go through the pearly gates, I'm leaving this stupid wheelchair behind. So, hey, we're all going to be healed who said yes to Christ. So it's just timing. That's all we're dealing with, timing here. There's a mystery. But Christ's blood makes that mystery possible. And Paul says, this is the most amazing thing. He says, finally, Christ's blood was shed for you about everything that was listed about you in the spirit realm. You see all the stuff that you've done that you thought no one ever saw and you did it in the dark and you hope no one ever finds out about it? Hell saw it all. It's all posted. It's all posted so the demons can see exactly what your weak points are. When Christ's blood was shed, Paul uses a very technical term, that blood washed that list away such that there's not even a record that anything was ever written there. Now add it all up. See, I was an alcoholic, I was a rageaholic, I was a sex addict. Christ's blood was shed at every point of my bondage so that I could walk into freedom, so that I could experience the amazing grace of God for me. Let's give him an applause offering. Can we do that? Lord, you're awesome. You're awesome. Now, it's not magic. Because the next point is they overcame him by the word of their testimony. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's kind of obvious in the text. John is saying to the young men and women that he poured his soul into. He's saying, listen, you're going to be drugged. You're going to be drugged before the court. And they're going to say, either you worship Caesar or you're dead. And John says, don't sell your soul. Don't sell out cheap. This life, in a few moments, you're going to be out of here. That's true for all of us. 30, 40 years, most of us are out of here. And this is just the title page in the total endless book of eternity. I mean, this is just the intro. You only take two things out of this life anyway. There's no U-Haul behind the hearse. You only take character and relationships. Everything else doesn't mean diddly. And John says, remember what's important. Well, how does that apply to us? We're Americans. I mean, we, it, it, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. God's blessed us. Let's use the blessing to bless others. But, you know, how do we deal with this? I mean, we're not facing death for our faith, but we do face decisions. 
I remember before I got out of the military, before God drafted me into the ministry, I, I did a flight that I always wanted to do. You see, I took four years of college and crammed it into six. <laughs> and I can remember walking the, the streets and the, the, you know, the hallways of that campus going, someday I'm going to come back here and I'm, I'm going to buzz this place. So I got the aircraft and I wrote a flight plan so no one could figure out what I was doing. Came along the California coast. I went to California Polytechnical University. Came in along Morro Rock, went just below supersonic and passed between the third and fourth level of the end mid building. I remember the secretary was just lifting a coffee cup up and I went, wham, brown, aileron rolled out of there, you know. And did it with the sun to my back so no one could see me because if they catch you, it's not like Top Gun where they just go like this. You become permanent shovel officer behind the elephants. I mean, it's over for you. You're not doing anything. So I, I blasted the camp, just ripped it, the, just, blah, it was awesome. Pull it off. No one ever found out, until about a month later. The operations officer says, Captain Roberts, you want to come here? And I'm standing there, and I thought, he's going to compliment me on the great job I'm doing. <laughs> he says, I'm going to ask you a very important question. You want to listen very carefully. And I'm going, this does not sound good. He said, did you buzz your college last month? I went back and spoke in that college last year. I realized why they called. I passed like 30 feet above the ground. People were having to hit the floor, okay? Because uh, I saw how low I was. And, and anyway, back to the scene. He said, did you buzz your college? And I'm going, this, this guy's just blowing smoke. There's no way he can prove I did that. I mean, he's got my career in his hands, man. Then I went like, mm, no. No, no, there's something much deeper going on here. My life is decided now. You see, I said yes to Christ. What kind of man of God am I going to be? Am I going to try to protect my career? Am I going to be honest? Am I going to be a man of integrity? You know, what's the call here, Ted? You said yes to Christ, but what does it really mean? What kind of man are you going to be? And I remember looking at him, and I went, oh, I'm dead. And I went, yes, sir, I did. And he paused, about three seconds. It seemed like three hours. I mean, I wasn't sweating like this. It was squirting out and hitting the floor. I mean, my career was over. And I remember he looked at me real sternly, and he winked, and he said, don't do it again. I went, oh, God, God, oh, God, 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 God. <laughs> Took me a year to figure out what had actually happened. That was a male authority figure, and I chose to trust God. See, God, once again, was reaching down into the fabric and the dimensions of my soul and bringing health and healing to areas that I didn't even know were broken. That's how awesome our God is. How incredible our God is. How profound our God is. Now, men, let me just ask you a simple question. You know, how integrous are you? I mean, if you've, if you've got a wedding ring on, on your left hand, that's a covenant built on a promise. How integrous are you with your sexuality? I mean, how integrous are you? You may be doing stuff behind the scenes. You may be on the internet. You may be masturbating and, and you, you know, I'm going to stop, I'm going to stop this and stop that. And, and there's, there's just no integrity. And you can't come in here and raise holy hands. Why? Because you're trapped. Get help. Get help. Christ didn't die for you so that you would live in that kind of quiet, subtle, smothering bondage. And I lived there for years. There's help for you. The blood of Christ 
with help from others, as you become honest and integrous, you start dealing with the issue, you start speaking to people who can help you, then finally you can become the man that God's really called you to be. There's freedom in Christ. So when you start getting the men in the flock to that depth of not perfection, but honesty before God, they'll start tearing hell apart. They'll just start tearing hell apart. Because I've never seen a man that doesn't want to be his wife's hero. Never have. But if you've got that stuff going on in the back, and in our society today, it's almost like impossible not to have it without the blood of Christ really applied to your life, then you just really lack integrity. You have no punch. So may I openly, gently, graciously challenge you. I mean, start dealing with this. And the ministry that we have here, you have here, and we can help you amplify, will help you start breaking through to that. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. They overcame him by the word of their testimony. And they love their lives not to the point of death. Now, how does that apply to us? I mean, I mean what, what are they talking about? Someone dying for their cause? No, we saw that at 9-11. There's all kinds of cracker cases that'll go out and die for a cause. So wh- what are we talking about here? In, in John, the beloved scene, it was real simple. You're going to die for your faith. I mean, if your faith is consistent, it's leading to death. But listen, where, oh, death, where's your sting? There isn't any. We're just transitioning to eternity. But how does that apply to our life? You, you and I. I mean, how does it remotely apply? Well, we make decisions on an ongoing basis that deal with our self-orientation. We're dying to self. And it's so unique in our culture when you find men and women who do that. Maybe this is the greatest illustration that I could ever use. I need to read it every now and then for me. It's a story, a true story of Robertson and Mercurial, Muriel, pardon me, McQuilkin. They've been married for 40 years, and the husband writes, quote, It's been a decade since that day in Florida when Muriel, my wife, repeated to the couple vacationing with us a story that she'd told only five minutes earlier. Funny, I thought. This never happened before, but it began to happen occasionally. And then he writes how she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and began a low, slow descent into oblivion. And he comments how it changed his life. Here's what he said. She is such a delight to me. I don't have to care for her. I get to. One blessing is the way she teaches me so much about love. For example, God's love. She picks flowers outside. Anyone's flowers. And fills the house with them. Lately, she began to pick them inside as well. Someone had given us a beautiful Easter lily, two stems with four to five lilies on each stem with more to come. One day, I came into the kitchen, and there in the vase over the windowsill was one of the stems from the lilies. I told her how disappointed I was, how the lilies would soon die. Please don't break off the other stem. Next day, our youngest son, soon to leave for India, came for his next to last visit. I told Ken of my rebuke of his mother and how bad I felt about it. As we sat on the porch swing, savoring each moment together, his mother came to the door with a gift of love for me. (laughs) She carefully laid the other stem of lilies on the table with a gentle smile and turned back into the house. I simply said, thank you. Ken said, you're doing better, Dad. You're doing a lot better. Muriel cannot speak in sentences now. Only phrases and words. Often in words that make little sense. She can only say one sentence, but she, all, she says it often. I love you. She not only says it, she acts it. 
The board of the college, and he served a very prominent college on the East Coast. The board of the college where I serve as president arranged for a companion to stay in our home so I could go to the office. During those two years, I became increase, it became increasingly difficult to keep Muriel at home. As soon as I left, she would take out after me. With me, she was content. Without me, she was distressed. The walk to school is a mile round trip. She would make the trip as many as, many as 10 times a day. Sometimes at night when I helped her undress, I found bloody feet. And I told our family doctor, he choked up. Such love, he said. I wish I loved God like that. Desperate to be near him at all times. She teaches me day by day. As we needed, as she needed more and more of me, I wrestled daily with the question of who gets me full time, the college or Muriel. When the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. Had I not promised, had I not promised 42 years ago in sickness and health till death to his part, it's more than keeping promises and being fair, though. As I watch her brave descent into oblivion, oblivion, Muriel is the joy of my life. Daily I discern new manifestations of the kind of person she is, the wife I've always loved. Daily I see manifestations of God's love. The God I long to love more fully. You know that kind of selflessness is almost unheard of in our society but that's what Christ makes possible now for those of you who've been divorced and remarried this is not a put down that's not why I read it you come to Christ you don't have to ever be divorced again because God can bring healing where there's been brokenness and where there's been damage where there's been hurt but the blood of Christ is so powerful his sacrifice is so overwhelming and his love is so staggering that it can allow us to live a life that is not so self-focused. And when that happens, you can't build churches big enough because it will have such an impact in our society. It will have such an incredible impact. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. You ever get confused about how valuable you are or if you're worth anything? I do all the time. Just look at the cross of Christ. Just look at your price tag. It's unbelievable. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. They overcame him by the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony. When we begin to realize how deeply loved we are, then we don't have to play the games where we twist words, where we put spin on words, where we tell a story to make ourselves look a little bit better than we actually are. We can be delighted with who we are because God is. And out of that, we, we don't love our life to have to run around and try to protect it and try to have to cover ourselves up. We just can live life with total abandon into the goodness and the grace of a Savior who is outrageously in love with us. When that settles down into a man or a woman's soul, you have someone that changes their world forever. Amen? Let's pray together. For those here who've said yes passionately and, and strongly to Christ. You may be struggling with some of these issues in your life and what I want to remind you as we close in prayer is that is Christ is outrageously in love with you. 
When you look at your failure and when you look at your sin and you look at what you want to be and where you're actually at, sometimes it can become overwhelming. For several here, and this is just a simple prophetic word to you, ma'am, you need to quit trying so hard. You just need to finally release yourself into the love of Christ. Because the harder you try not to do that, the more you do it. It is in the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Christ that you begin to realize the freedom that he has purchased for you at the cross. And sir, the anger that you're fighting with is not about what, what is around you. I mean, you just had an argument with your, with your wife as you drove in this morning. That anger, that quiet, smoldering anger is not about your wife. It's not about the circumstances. It's about the woundedness that's within you. You said yes to Christ, but would you allow his goodness and grace this morning to supernaturally, to just gently and powerfully as only a sovereign God can do, reach down into your soul and begin to convince you of your value and your worth before God. And then you won't have to react. You won't have to react with anger. Father, thank you that because of Jesus Christ, because we have passionately said yes to him, Lord, there is the possibility within our life to live the life that we dreamed of and hoped for. Help us to be people, Lord, who are walking not in perfection, but with integrity down to the depths of our soul. That we're being honest about our stuff. And when our mate points us out that we don't kick into this defensive reactiveness, we simply say, okay, help me. Help me to become who God's called me to be. Jesus, would you work that miracle in a new depth in our soul? We love you, but we need to be transformed more and more by you. Before we go, may I ask a simple question? If you're here investigating the claims of Christ, or if you're just here and you've never said yes to Christ, why not today? Have you said yes to this magnificent, awesome Savior, the one who created you and him died for you? I know, I don't understand it, but you can say yes to it. You can say yes to the amazing goodness and grace of Christ. Or maybe you did years ago and you kind of got lost along the way. And it's time for you to come back home to the amazing, staggering love of God in Jesus Christ. Well, wherever you're at, is it time for you to say yes to Christ today? Could I pray with you? I'm not going to embarrass you, but I am going to ask you to be bold enough in just a moment to raise your head and raise your hand so I know who I'm praying with. And I'm asking you to do that because Christ was bold about his love for you. It was torn to shreds for you. That's how much he loves you. And I'm just going to ask you in a moment to raise your head and raise your hand. All you're saying is, Pastor Ted, would you pray for me? I want the blessing of God in my life. I want to say yes to Jesus Christ. Oh, my friend, if that's where you're at, could I pray with you? Would you just catch my attention as I look around the flock, looking over here to my right and your left? Just stick up your hand, wave at me. Yeah, thanks. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Okay, center second. Yes, ma'am. Okay. And over here, my left, your right. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thanks. And all the way over here. Great, thank you. <sighs> Lots of folks that Jesus loves so deeply. And would you take one other step? Would you reach over and join hands with the person beside you? And if you say, I don't want to touch anybody. Okay, all right, fine. I was the same way for a long time. 
But I'm asking you to join hands because, see, you don't have to fight this battle alone. One of the marvelous things God will do for you is not only get you to heaven, but he'll give you some great friends along the way. Friends for eternity. Now, they're just as messed up as you are. But we stumble along together towards the kingdom, okay? You finally have some people, there'll be a couple, that you can be just totally honest with. And they won't dump on you. And they won't shove you away. Because they'll be honest too. Now, final step. If you've made that decision, would you just gently squeeze the hand of the person beside you? Don't break their knuckles, but just say, yeah, I made that decision. Go public with it. Father, those of us who raised our hands, and there were a number of us in this service, what we're saying without equivocation is, Jesus, you be Lord. I don't understand all that that means, but here's my life, here's my hopes, here's my dreams, here's my trash, here's my junk, here's my sin. Put it all in your hands because they're nail-scarred. You died for me. And you rose again so that there is a potential for me to live a life that I'm not capable of, to live a life by your grace and your love. So, Jesus... You be my Lord. That's my declaration today. You be the captain of my soul. Now, my friend, if you agreed with that declaration, God heard you. And you just started a marvelous journey. God's releasing grace your way, but I want to tell you something. It's usually wrapped in struggle paper, but God will show you how to unwrap it. And along the way, you'll discover the goodness and the grace of God at every single step. Father, thank you for the amazing, staggering, awesome, powerful beauty of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now let's lift an applause offering unto the Lord. As Greg says, it's all about love, the outrageous love of God, and the message that Ted just preached is about that as well, the staggering, amazing love of God. And I'd just like to invite any of you who prayed that prayer with Ted to accept Christ for the first time. Uh, over here to my right is a table. Um, there'll be some folks standing there to give you some information on how to proceed in this new life that you've just opened the door to today. And also, for those of you who have some prayer needs, uh, the altar prayer, I'd ask the altar prayer team to come forward now. You can come forward to get a touch from the Lord. I'm just going to close the service with a prayer. Father God, thank you for your presence here. Thank you that you sent your son, Lord, not to the ER, as Ted said, but to the cross to die for us and to give us this possibility of, of redemption so that we can be not just have our sins forgiven, but to be freed from the struggle of sin in this life. So thank you for that wonderful gift, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.